Well, like Pastor Eric said, uh, this is a very special day. Chris Brown is in the house. How great is that? Uh, I have... Um, I, I've had such a fun morning sitting here on the front row worshiping with Pastor Chris on one side and Pastor Eric on the other. And I just, I have felt cool the whole morning, you know, between coolness past and coolness present and future. A great superstar leader of the past here, great superstar leader, Eric, of the present and the future. It's just been a really, really fun morning. And for those of you that are new to Purpose Church, uh, Pastor Chris Brown, God sent him to us at a very, very strategic time in our 150-year history. Uh, we were a church that was aging, an older congregation, and we needed to figure out a way to connect with the next generation. And God sent us Chris Brown. He was our high school pastor for about seven years, then was with us for an additional three years, for a total of 10 years, when he was campus pastor at Azusa Pacific University. And God really used him to help us to figure out as a church how to truly be multi-generational, to reach this generation and the next, and by the grace of God the next until Jesus returns. And so it's so wonderful to have him back with us. Now, when, when Chris was here, we began to sense that he was one of the great preachers in America today, and that has certainly been fulfilled in the last 15 years since he's been gone. And we really, probably one of the first to figure out that this, uh, he really is one of the great preachers in America today. But you know what he has become even since? He, he was certainly that before, but even more developed since then is he's become a great Christian leader and one of the highest respected Christian leaders in America today, one of the great Christian leaders in America today. I always say that church growth has more to do with leadership than it does great preaching. And his church now that he pastors uh, every weekend has an average of 12,000 people. Uh, North Coast and Vista, California has become one of the largest churches in America today. And so we've seen Chris develop as not just one of the great preachers in our country, but one of the great Christian leaders leaders in our country as well. And we are so glad to have him with us. Uh, he's going to continue our series from the letters of John called In the Light. Would you please give a warm and enthusiastic Purpose Church welcome home to Chris Brown. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. She will stop at the door and check her reflection one more time. She will grab her scarf and wrap it around her neck, pull it over her head, and pull it down just below the eyebrows. She, she tells her friends it's because she loves accessorizing. It's why she has a closet full of scarves. But she's afraid inside their heads they know the real reason. She just assumes. She will put the large pot down on the stoop just inside the door fix her hair, wink at herself. Uh, another good friend told her that years ago she was struggling with her self-esteem and depression. And her friend just told her, you know, before you leave the house every day, why don't you wink at yourself and tell yourself that you're lovable? She has long given up telling herself she's lovable. The wink is now just more of a habit. 
She'll pull the scarf down even tighter. She'll grab the jug and cradle it like an infant. And she will quietly try to open the latch on her door. Her, her mom has laid down for an afternoon nap. And she doesn't want to wake her. Where are you going? What are you doing? At her age, it's embarrassing enough to be living back home with mom. And so she'll open the door and slip out. And just in as much stealth mode, she will shut it without making a noise. And still facing the wood door, she takes a deep breath and then turns and hurries. Along the little crowded streets, three blocks down, she will keep her eyes on the cobblestone. She'll not create any attention toward herself, try not to look anyone else in the eye. She thinks they're staring at her. And no matter what you can tell her, she knows. They know. So she keeps her head down and she moves quickly. It'll be two more streets to the right, and then she'll cut across the marketplace to get to the city gates. It's there in the marketplace. Her breathing becomes more shallow. She can feel the perspiration under her scarf. And she didn't mean to stop. It's not really her fault. On that day, on the corner, someone had set up racks and racks of new garment, new linen, and silk scarves. The type she's never seen before. Color she's only imagined. And for a moment it catches her attention. She'll put down the jar and she'll run her fingers through the fabric. She doesn't have coin in her pocket to buy. She's just looking. But she will allow herself this moment to look. And then she hears their chatter. Three women on the other side of the booth. They haven't noticed her yet. And maybe she can get out before they do. She will pick up her pot, keep her head down and move. Quickly through the marketplace, through the city gate. Where all the commerce and the business is taking place. She will move quickly. It's not until she moves off the road and down the dirt path. That she starts to breathe easy. She will undo her scarf. She will feel the breeze and the sun in her face, and she will have a moment of peace. You see the shrubs, the bushes, the flowers, they don't seem to judge. They don't point fingers. They don't know who she is. They don't care who she is. It's the well she has to go to, praying every time that her greatest nightmare doesn't come true today. As long as I don't get found out, as long as I'm not exposed, I can make it there and I can make it back. And yet today, she will come face to face with her greatest nightmare. She will be exposed. And what she doesn't understand is that it has to happen. She has to live through this afternoon if she is going to really live another day. And we have to go there. And maybe... Today, you have to go there. And we have to each conjure up our greatest nightmare. And then decide if we are willing to walk through it. To have a different tomorrow. It's the story behind the studies that you've been doing the last few weeks. It's the story behind the text of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's the stories that put the pieces together. What John has been writing, what you've been studying here... A man that writes about the truth and knowing the truth and the truth will set you free. A man who writes about God isn't, God you're supposed to love. You're supposed to understand how much he loves you. And in return, your response will be to love. But this is love. Not that we try to love God on a Sunday morning, but that we understand God's love for us. 
This is what John sits down and writes. Look, look, enough about you trying to play religion and be spiritual. I want to talk to you about the truth. Where do these writings come from? Day after day after day, he watched the nightmares exposed. And now they fill every page of his letters. So I want to take you to the story behind the text. We're in a book simply called John chapter 4. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open it. If you got a smartphone, go ahead and turn it on. Go ahead and click the Bible. Don't check the golf scores. If you check your leaderboard right now, your favorite player will lose. That's how church works. Right now, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the book rack ahead of you. Talking about talking about truth today. Glenn, that introduction you will be accountable for one day. That's between you and God. That is hard to follow the most encouraging man in America. I said it before here. If Glenn ever met Satan, he would encourage him somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> he would. He would say, look, I don't agree with what you do, but I just got to say, you're really good at your job. You got, I mean, you're one of the most committed, one of the most dedicated workers I know. And I'm like, nice job, Glenn. That was Satan. Go for it. <laughs> that was funny. I don't care who you are. John chapter 4. So if you get a Bible and then get one in the book rack, it's, I don't know what page number it's on. Go to the back, flip through, look for the guy's names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 4. Are you there? Are you there? Good. Insert old man glasses now. John 4, 1. Now the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Now when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, I love this. It really doesn't have anything to do with our story. It's tied on to what was happening before in this passage. But I love that, once again, church politics gets in the way of church ministry. I love that, once again, we have a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, and they want all the people to be in their church. The problem is, there's a dude dressed in, like, camel skin, eating locusts and honey, named John the Baptist, and people are going out lining up in front of him. Now there's another guy named Jesus, and now the crowds are following him. And the church is getting frustrated. Religion at that time says, no, no, everyone has to line up this way. We have to do it this way. And now they're counting numbers on who's leading what. And Jesus just takes off from the entire argument. He just leaves the politics of religion. I love what's happening here with Glenn and with Eric. I love what's happening across churches in America that after 2,000 years are really starting to get this. The shared leadership and what we do, multiple strengths, multiple weaknesses, all gathered at the same positions of leadership, make for a much healthier church. We have 12 senior pastors at our church, soon to be 13, and that's not just in title. They can outvote me. It's the way we set it up. Now look, I firmly believe only one man gets to run the church. I firmly believe that. And once you die and rise again, you get to be that guy. If you can't pull that off, the job's taken. The job's taken. So let me just encourage this church to have multiple generations of leaders, multiple generations of teachers to break a model that isn't even biblical but is traditional of one pastor, one guy. It's ludicrous. It has become the death of much of Christianity in our nation today. One man does not get to lead his church. We get to share. We get to do this in circles. Where do you find that biblically? It starts on page one. Our God himself does not exist outside of shared leadership. He is three in one. He doesn't even run the show with uno, but tres. That's good theology. So Jesus sees the argument of one person, one leadership, who's running what, and he just leaves the scene, and here we get our story. Now he had to go 
through Samaria. Circle, highlight, underline, had to go. Oh, if we keep stopping this long, we'll never get through with this, but this is too good. He had to go. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you get to a place where Jesus had to do, stop. Because Jesus is God. He doesn't had to do anything. I know that's bad English, but that's good theology. Jesus doesn't had to do anything. So when you get to a place where it says Jesus had to, stop, circle, highlight, underline, and go whatever this is, this is big. Whatever's about to happen is the heart of my God. Whatever is about to unfold after Jesus had to is his priority, is his purpose, purpose church. And if we follow this God, it better be ours because he hasn't changed, he hasn't gotten smarter, he hasn't gotten wiser with time, he hasn't figured out people, he is God, always has been, always is, always will be the same. So the way Jesus dealt with people then is the way he deals with us today. If you're wondering today, what would Jesus do with me? Oh, let me promise you, this is what Jesus has to do with you today. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now when a Samaritan woman woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "Well, will you give me a drink? You see, in parentheses, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, well, well, you, you, you're a Jew. (laughs) I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Parentheses. Because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And in just the midst of three sentences, we have so much cultural context that comes flying in. We have to take a time out and pause. It is the sixth hour. Jewish time, Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. So if your clock starts at 6 a.m. and this is the sixth hour, it's 12. I did that for you. Check the math on your own though. Always check my math. It is noon. The sun is at its apex. It is hot in the Middle East. It is not the time you get water. This is not simply how culture did things 2,000 years ago. This is today. Six times I've visited Haiti. All six times I've seen this played out on multiple, multiple times and days. In Africa and many places I visit, it's the exact same. In many towns today, there's only one water source, one place of potable water. Now listen, you and I would never drink it. We wouldn't consider it drinkable. Their lives depend on it. And you go early in the morning and you line up. In St. Louis the Nord, on the northern side of the island of Haiti, there's a pipe that comes out of a massive brick wall and water just spouts out. In years past, different organizations have tried to put some sort of faucet, some sort of knob on it, but the day they do, it is cut off that night. It is taken, it is sold, it is used for something. So long ago they gave up trying to cap it. It is just a pipe. It is the only source of drinkable water for tens of thousands in this area. And so every morning, starting around 4 a.m., the lines start. In the darkness of the morning, lines on both sides of the pipe line up by hundreds down the street. Everyone carrying multiple sorts of old gallon jugs, antifreeze jugs, buckets. And this person will fill, and then this person, and then this person, and this person, and it is an arduous task. And if you happen to be in that line, it can take an hour and a half to two hours for you to get your water. You get enough water that your family needs for the day, and you take it home. If you need water for that evening, a shorter line, 
but still a line forms. And before darkness, you try to get enough water to get you and your family through the night. But no one goes in the heat of the day. You see in these towns and villages, this is also where the news is spread. When you stand in lines, this is where your community talks about the tabloids. Who is doing what? Who said what? Who is angry at who? This is where you find out what is happening in the early hours in your community. And she has come at noon because she is the tabloid in her community. She is the conversation. So she will avoid it at all costs. And besides, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. A long history there that goes back 518 years before this story. The Jews were picked by God to be a nation. God looked for the greatest loser in the known world at that time. His name was Abraham. A man that comes from a backwoods, idol-worshipping family in the midst of uh, Babylonia. And says, look, you're old as dirt. You're not having kids. You have nothing going for you. If you follow me, I'll make you into a great nation. And people are going to look at that and go, there has to be a God. Look what he did with that dude. (laughs) And that's Genesis. And in his 90s, he had a son. And out of this, God makes Israel. And says, out of this nation, I will send my son. This is where salvation will come from. And the Israelites have kept their bloodline, their race pure. Until the Assyrian army swept through. Until the Babylonian army defeated the Egyptians in the battle of Carchemish. Until in the midst of these world empires, this tiny little sliver of land, Israel, is a pawn that gets traded and dispersed. And people get dropped off and leaders get taken away. And there's a group of people that say we will still only be with same countrymen. We will preserve the Jewish race. And then there's other Jews who go, wow, she's hot. And they will intermarry. And they will mix gods. And they will mix religion. You see, Jews and Samaritans, it's not about a different group of people. It's not about a different country. It's your people who have ripped off you and your God. There's a line drawn in the sand, and no one crosses it. And he is a rabbi. And rabbis do not talk to women in public, even of their own kind. Many rabbis in the first century would not talk to their wives in public. I know some of you women are like, I think I married a rabbi. This dude. (laughs) We went out last night, he grunted three times. Eh, maybe a rabbi, probably just a dude. <laughs> you are a Jew, I am a Samaritan. You have disciples, I am a woman. Something's up. And he will cross every social, every racial, every ethnic barrier. This is what he had to do. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. Well, well, sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and did his sons and his flocks and his herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never first. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't have to get thirsty and keep coming back to draw water. Why are a guy like you talking to a woman like me? Hey, look, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd ask me for a drink. How are you going to give me a drink? You don't have a jar. You don't have anything to get water with. Now look, 
this is well water. This is cistern water. It kind of looks and tastes like clay. It's the best you have. I get it. But if you knew me, you would ask for living water, bubbling water, spring water, fresh water. And I have water that makes sure you will never thirst again. See, every day you have to make your journey out here. Every day you have to try to avoid your past by making your present work. I can give you water that can quench you. You don't have to keep coming back. <gasps> I'm in. Give me this water. And this is where the churches I grew up in failed me miserably. This is usually where the church in America stops. I mean, not this one. This one's amazing. Other churches stop. Okay, here's all I have to do, lady. Just bow your head, close your eyes, say this little prayer. Dear God, dear God, come into my life and be my Lord and be my Savior and forgive me my sins. Amen. Amen. Okay, now, boys and girls, look, look, listen, listen. Look, look, listen, listen. Jesus is always with you. He'll never leave you. And how many times have I said the prayer? And how many times did I want my money back? But you had someone asking for it. You had someone say, I'm willing. Just say a prayer. And Jesus doesn't say, just say a prayer. This is what Jesus had to do. Just say a prayer and pretend like it's okay. Maybe a start to relationship, but most of the time it's just religion. And religion's great as long as you're in a spiritual house like this. But it's going to last about as long as it takes to get you to your car. Because you have to go home with you. <laughs> and you outpowers religion. So he goes there. He told her, why don't you go call your husband and come back? I love this. He's like, well, it's, it's like a timeshare presentation. I need both of you here. You're going to sit through 45 minutes. At the end, you get one of three. <laughs> get a round trip to any place in the world or a fruit basket. Oh, look, you got the fruit basket. Thanks for sitting through this. I need your husband in on this. And I love her response. I have no husband, she replied. Huh? Jesus usually isn't wrong. Jesus said to her, you are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is just quite true. <gasps> I see you're a prophet. You're good. Did Karen put you up to this? Did Karen call you? See, Jesus isn't wrong. When Jesus comes up and he goes, hey, when do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm not pregnant. He goes, you may want to take a test. When Jesus walks up and goes, hey, sorry you lost your job. Oh, no, I didn't lose my job. Yeah, about Monday. <laughs> it's going to be a tough Monday for you, buddy. Why don't you call your husband? Oh, I don't have a husband. I know you've had five, and the man you're currently with isn't your husband. The phrasing there is a little ambiguous. It can go one of either ways. Either the guy you're currently living with you're not married to, which even in the Samaritan culture isn't culturally correct, so probably not accurate. It usually means the man you're currently sleeping with is someone else's husband. You've had five. The one you're with now isn't your husband, but he still is husband. And now we know why you're here at noon. And now we know why you wrap the scarves, why you look down when you walk, why you only breathe deeply once you're away from the crowd. 
And now your greatest nightmare has just been exposed. So she tries to play this on his terms. Um, Sir, the woman said, I I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) Um, Hey, you know our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. (laughs) Isn't this good? Oh, so you're a prophet. You know, I've been thinking about going to church. We have a church. I know where you guys go to church in Jerusalem, right? Isn't that good? We know there's a gap between us and God. How do we close that gap? Religion? Religion? Hey, how you doing? Oh, doing pretty good. Actually, I heard you're not doing that good. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about going to church. I've been thinking about going more regularly and plugging in. That ain't going to do jack for you. That's not going to work. We try to close this gap by religion. Well, we're not allowed in your temple, so we built our own temple. I've been thinking about sacrificing there. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Worship is not what happens in this building. She takes worship as out here, it's external. He goes, no, worship is the place of the heart. As amazing as your multi-generational choir is, as amazing as your orchestra and a horn section, incredible. My 13-year-old bear is with me today. We're at the end of a road trip where I've been doing some speaking and flying around, and, and we came back home today. And bear saw first service with everything. He's all, dad, I thought these kind of churches were only on TV. Well, yeah, this is, this is pretty amazing, isn't it? Oh, but let me tell you, this isn't worship. It can be a part of your worship, but worship isn't what happens up here. Worship is here. He goes, let me tell you, lady, I'm not trying to get you to church. I'm not trying to get you into worship. I'm going after this. A time is coming, and you're going to have to understand, it's not about religion. You see, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come. Circle, highlight, underline. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must, circle, highlight, underline, worship in spirit and truth. Here's the problem, lady. You're trying to come to church. You're trying to get a Jesus fix. You're trying to get a religion patch on your life. The problem is your life is bigger than any church patch you can put on. Whatever you try to experience in this room, you're going to lose it by the drive home. Because on the drive home, you got to go home with you. <laughs> You've never been able to avoid that one, have you? you got to go home with you. And so I don't care what happens in this room. If you're not good here, it doesn't last by the time you get to the parking lot. You want to truly find worship with God. It's got to be spiritual, yes, but also in truth. You forgot to worship God with truth. My whole life, church tried to bring me to a spiritual moment where I would make a decision. Great. No one ever dealt with my truth. No one ever dealt with my past. Oh, you said a prayer. It's forgiven? Really? Then why is it still my nightmare? Why am I still covered in guilt and shame? No one ever walked through what happens page after page after page. John watched this happen. No wonder he writes your series, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, where he talks about the truth that we got to have with God. When he talks about understanding how much God loves us, he saw what Jesus had to do. He pursues us. No wonder, John writes, this is love, not that we have to love God, but you understand what he's done for you. When you understand what he's done for you, 
your response is going to be loving God. And the woman tries to reconcile this. I know that the Messiah, the one called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This, this is a good moment. Well, I know Jesus is coming one day. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Lady, don't you see the red letters? I can only pull that off. <laughs> Just then, his disciples returned. They were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The disciples come back and they realize, uh-oh. He's talking to a woman, and one of those, and not just those, those, it's a double those woman. It's a Samaritan with a past and a present. Pete, you go talk to him. How do you go tell Jesus he's wrong? Even Peter's smart enough to go, yeah, not this time. He's, he called me Satan last time I tried to straighten him out. But they know this is not right. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of town and they made their way toward him. Now 31 through 38 is a great story about the disciples doing Jesus going, hey, well, we got tacos for you. And he goes, man, I got food you don't understand. Where'd you get food? No, I got other food. And it's a great, but it's not what we're doing. Verse 39. So now many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Circle, highlight, underline. Second time it mentions her story. He told me everything I've ever done. Third time it mentions it. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged Jesus to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Fourth time mentioned. We now have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Are you kidding me? What happened that afternoon? The very thing she is avoiding, her past that she can't get around, her greatest nightmare that someone know who she is, what she's done, 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 what she's currently doing will be exposed. Something happened that afternoon where now her greatest nightmare is the story she tells. Come see a guy who knows what I've done. And there's a sixth. And the townspeople say, after meeting with Jesus, we now believe, not just because we heard your story, but because now we have our own. What happened in that moment? I know some of you have pen and pencil and there's blanks in front of you and your neurotic note taker's going, are you kidding me? We gotta write. I'm down to just... Two plus three. I'm down to two hours. And so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to make room for the next service to come in. And, um, no. In your notes, how do we do this? Number one, just to understand, not dealing with the past robs us of our future. If we cannot deal with our past, it will rob us of our future. Lady, you have to deal with this if you're going to have it tomorrow. We have to go there if you're gonna have it today. If your past is still in your present, you can never have a future. So what is it? What is it that happened seven years ago, 15 years ago, 35 years ago, that's still today? What is that one thing that you pray to God no one finds out about? Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go around and just have you say the worst thing you've ever done. We're gonna. <laughs> We're going to start with Eric. 
This may take a long time, folks, with Eric, so just hang on. I want you to grab that. Here's how you kind of formulate. What is it right now that if everybody in this church really knew about you, you would be finding a new church next week? If you have that, I promise you, it still has a hold on you. You don't own it. And this is what he had to do. How to deal with it, number one, we're gonna have to face the truth. We're gonna have to face the truth. Because this is what we're wrestling with. We're wrestling with the truth about me. It's every time you come to church and you feel like worshiping, you go to raise your hands, and this little voice goes, remember what you did with those hands? Yep. Yep. It's every time you hear a message or you feel like you're in a place where maybe God's gonna do something, this is gonna be different. And on the way home, you're reminded of who you are and what you've done. It's that thing that keeps you from stepping out into true grace and freedom and the power of God because it's the truth about you. And we have to stop and face that that is the truth about us. And then secondly, we have to accept the truth about us. We have to accept it. You say, well, Chris, isn't that the same thing? We face the truth and accept it? No, they're two different things. Most of us have no problem knowing there's a truth about us. We just need to stop and face it. A lot of us have a real hard time accepting that. See, what we do instead is we try to bury it. Have you ever tried to bury your past? Have you ever tried to get far enough away from it? Have you ever tried to get to a place where you're just not brought up? I don't talk about that relationship. I don't talk about that marriage. I don't talk about that deal. I don't talk about that self-gratification. I don't talk about that time in my life. What happens? Since you're still alive, your past is still alive, and you can't bury something that's not dead. It's like the old horror movies where it keeps crawling out of the coffin, and you're like, ah, I thought I killed that thing. You can't kill it. It's you. It is the truth about you. You have to stop, and you have to accept it. We try to bury it, or we try to blame. Isn't that good? You don't understand the family I grew up in. You don't understand who my dad was. If I had a dad that wasn't well, you don't understand who she was or who he was. You don't understand my first spouse. You don't understand, and we blame. And people, that's not new. That was happening on page three. Genesis three. <laughs> you know it's a two-page Bible, right? Page one backs up everything science has come to show and understand. That the more we can peer into the outer edges, we realize there are no outer edges, but we do understand that everything is moving away from a specific point in time. There's absolutely no way of denying that everything we see and do and life itself is based on a big bang. That is undeniable. You cannot argue that. Science has proven it. Page one proves it. Where they differ slightly, page one says the big bang was a voice of a creator that spoke life into being. Science hasn't come up with a page one yet. They just know there was a page one. Page two. Because we were created by a purpose, we have a purpose. And our purpose is to have a perfect relationship with God and others. Page three. We screwed that up. Eh, didn't last long, did it? We've been given choice because God didn't want robotic love. Love is a choice. And if he allowed a choice to love and experience love, there has to be choices to unlove. And the brokenness and hurt and the pain that unlove causes. Simply for love to exist. That's the Bible. The rest of this entire book from page three on is not how we get to God. 
It's everything God has done to get to us to restore page two. And on page three, he showed up and said, so uh, you ate the fruit. And Adam's all, hey, look, the woman that you gave me, I love the dude. Isn't he awesome? There's three of us in this equation. And the guy's like, look, I don't care who it is, but one of you are wrong. It's the woman, and you gave her to me, so you guys can sort this out. And the woman's awesome. She's like, hey, you allowed the serpent here, and he, she should be talking to the snake. And what do they do? They hide. They hide, which is ridiculous, isn't it? What kind of God do you think you have? There's two people on the globe. And he's like, oh, I put him here yesterday. Like they found God's kryptonite. He can't see through leaves. Jump behind the bush. We hide. I love laughing at them because when I laugh at how dumb they are, I can see myself in the pages. Chris, you think you're hiding your past from him? You think you can't see through leaves? We have to accept the truth. Not only did that happen to me, or not only did I do that, but I've got to accept that is me. That exactly is who I am and where I've come from and what I've done and what's been done to me. And what does that bring us? Guilt and shame. Guilt says I've done something bad. But when you live in guilt for a while, it brings shame. Shame then says I am bad. Guilt says I know I've done wrong. Shame then says, no, you are just wrong. Guilt says I've, I've broken something. Shame says, no, Chris, you're broken. You're broken. And we bury it. And like mold in a cellar, guilt and shame left in isolation just creeps into every brick of my foundation. And all the books today are on self-help. Be a better you. Be a better you. Be a better you. Well, it's not the me today I'm wrestling with. No matter how good I can be today, I'm wrestling with who I was. So the books have changed now to positive thinking. If you think yourself better, if you have a better mindset, the problem is I'm wrestling with truth, not lies. I've never been in church and had this little voice goes, really, you're gonna worship God? Remember that night you got all that cocaine and those prostitutes? And I'm like, yeah. Oh, wait a second, that never happened. And Satan's like, oh, I almost got you with that one. No, that's stupid. Satan doesn't use lies against me. Why? Because I've armed him with 88 to 92. He's got plenty of facts against me. And I can't run him. I can't escape him. I got family members that are working on third marriages. They've moved five different states. And they still haven't realized that wherever you go, you are there. There's a science behind that. I can't explain it, but I just know it's true. Wherever you go, you are there, and you cannot outrun yourself. And so it brings us into we will have to accept grace, not guilt. We have to accept grace, not guilt. This is why Jesus had to go there. This is why John writes in your series, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and circle, highlight, underline, stars, arrows, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just. He can't just wave a magic wand. There has to be justice. So instead of his wrath being poured out on you, he took it on his son. He will say, okay, if you come to me, if we confess, I will allow my son's horrific death to pay for whatever you've done because I still have to be just. I can't let you off scot-free. But he'll pay the price and he will forgive us of our sins. And cleanse us, purify us from unrighteousness. You see, the American church does an amazing job teaching forgiveness. We do a lousy job teaching freedom. And there is an and that says these are two things John experienced in this story for two days, watching Samaritans come and being forgiven and now sharing their story openly. Let's just do a poll here. How many of you believe that if if you ask Jesus to forgive you, that he will forgive you your sins? How many of you believe that? That's slow. People go, are most hands up? Okay, I'll vote. I'll vote. <laughs> now let me ask you a question. How many of you have asked for forgiveness multiple times for the exact same act that you did once? Look at all the hypocrites in the room. Look at all of you. Look at all of you. What's wrong? You just told me you could be forgiven. Because forgiveness happens. I still walk in the guilt and shame. Do you know I was your youth pastor here? And for the first three years, I had two cardboard boxes folded flat in that red brick building in the top corner office overlooking the parking lot in a little sliding uh, cabinet that was in that office. Because I was sure that even though I was having the time of my life being a youth pastor here, somebody from Fallbrook who knew me in 88 to 91, 92, was gonna find out I was a pastor and say, no way. And they were gonna drive up here and they were gonna walk into Glenn's office on the bottom floor and they were gonna expose who I was, what I did, who I did it with. And I kept two cardboard boxes so I could quickly unfold them, grab everything that I could and just get out of here. I was waiting for the rug to be pulled out from under me. I was teaching your sons and daughters forgiveness, but no one walked me through freedom in my own life. He goes, Chris, you're not gonna say prayer. You're not gonna come here and worship me. The time has come, we're real worshiping God. In fact, it's now. You must worship spirit and truth. I gotta have the truth. He will do this over and over on the night that he's being beaten and crucified, Peter will come back, one of the only disciples to be close to the trial. And people will recognize him around the flames as he's warming himself in the courtyard, as Jesus is getting the smack beat out of him. Aren't you a disciple? No way, not me, uh-uh. Someone else, surely, your language gives it away. You're a Galilean, no way, I'm not one. A third time, so he starts cursing, and they're like, okay, you're a sailor, not a disciple. You're good, you're good. And what happens they killed Jesus. Three days later, he pulls off Easter, and then he tells them, go get my boys and Peter. And Peter. Because when Peter hears he wants the disciples back, Peter will realize it ain't me anymore. I blew that. No, you were the only one mentioned by name, bonehead. And he shows up on the beach, and Jesus puts his arms around him. 
says, hey, I got three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the third time it said Peter was hurt because he knew it was going up. And Jesus says, look, this is your worst nightmare. But let me tell you, if I leave and we don't get this cleared up, you will never preach a message again without keeping your eye on the back door wondering who's coming in, who knows. What if they find out about me? What if someone knows about that night? And he goes, I love you too much to allow you to live in guilt and shame. I don't want to just forgive you. I want to free you. We have to accept grace, not guilt. We have to take our truth, face it, accept it. That is true. And now there is a higher truth I must believe in. That in spite of that, I am loved. In spite of that, I am called son. In spite of that, I'm given a purpose. And that's what we have to accept. But we can't do it until we sit at the well and we bring it out. And you have to pull it out and say, God, thank you for this. Not that it happened, not that it was done, but God, thank you that in spite of this, I am loved today. In spite of this, you cannot take your hands, your eyes off of me. You see, finally what happens is our past will be Satan's greatest weapon or God's most powerful tool. There is no middle ground. Your past will be what Satan uses against you. And whatever you have in this moment will be flushed out by the time you get home because you know the real you. You came to worship God spiritually, and he loves you too much not to take your spiritual worship. He says, I want the truth. I want you, because I want you to know that I know, and we're good. And if anyone ever brings it up, you say, oh, let me tell you more of the story. Because it can become your most powerful tool. It was her nightmare at noon, and four times she tells her nightmare to the town. And they come out by the hundreds. Because now it's your greatest tool. This is not forgiveness. This is freedom. This is you and I curling up by the well with God saying, here it is. It's the truth. I accept that. This is who I am and what was done to me and where I've come from. God, thank you. That in spite of that, I can have freedom. This is probably not a one-time prayer. This past has clawed its way into your present. And every thought you will take captive and say, God, yes, that is who I was. And in spite of that, thank you. God, yes, that is true. And in spite of that, thank you. Failure in the kingdom of God is simply an event. It is never a person. There is a great evangelist called Brownlow North in the late 1800s that was invited to come back to his hometown where he was a young adult to preach at the church in Aberdeen. And as he sat in the front row, waiting for the last hymn to be done, a longtime member of the community walked down, took a letter folded up, dropped it over his shoulder, and just walked and stood in the back. And Brownlow North opened it up, and it simply said, how dare you come back here if you stand up and open your mouth to teach. I will let everyone in this church know who you were and what you did. And when the music finished, Brownlow North got up and he walked up to the big wooden pulpit. He said, I was going to start a little differently, but instead today I'd like to read a letter. And he read it out loud. And he said, I just promise you everything that gentleman in the back is about to say is true. And there's a whole lot more to that story. And I want to share with you the grace that brings me here today. 
My past is my story. It is my grace. It is not my guilt. It is not my shame. It was the reason for that cross. And John will write first, second, and third. This is why we love God. Because he did this for us. This is what we do. We come and ask not for forgiveness, but also freedom. And these are the stories behind the text you've been studying. And if this is the way God dealt with people then, this is the way God deals with us today. If this is what Jesus had to do then, this is what Jesus has to do with you today. It's not something we do in here religiously. You today need to find time where you sit by the well and say, God, here we go. I don't know why I'm hiding this. You know it. This is it. This is truth. I accept that's who I am. And today I accept a higher truth that in spite of this, here's who I can be with your forgiveness and freedom. And every time your enemy shoots that against you, you grab and go, of course that was me. And this is who I am today. And I promise you will start to own your past. It is the power of the Spirit of God in us. What a story. Father, may we be a people today. As we are about to leave a religious ceremony, may we be a people that now step into the truth. And we can only do that with you. You are a personal God. You will meet us where we are at. You will meet us at our well today. This is what you had to do. Forgive us for trying to come in and get worship on, for trying to say prayers when the truth about who we are just knocks us flat by the time we drive out of here. May we bring you all of us and know that all of us is loved, all of us is accepted. May our shame and guilt not drive us away from you, but may shame and guilt propel us towards you because you are the only thing that can take away shame and guilt and replace it with the greater truth that we are sons, we are daughters, we are prince or princess in the kingdom of God. We are heir to the throne. May that be the new truth we hold on to. May that be our story today.